You're listening to The Real Wealth Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. Thousands of investors are flocking to multifamily investments in search of high cash flow and high profits from increased rents. And yet, some investors are net sellers, putting all of their holdings on the market for sale at top dollar. So is it a buyer's market or a seller's market? I'm Kathy Fetke, and welcome to The Real Wealth Show. The answer is, as always, it depends. Our guest today is invested in many cities across the nation and has his finger on the pulse of the multifamily industry. I had the opportunity of hearing him on an opening panel at IMN's Multifamily Conference in Chicago, and I liked his perspective so much that I invited him to be here on The Real Wealth Show. Robert Bolhoffer is a managing principal of 29th Street Capital, based in Chicago, and they have multifamily properties all over the country. So he's really got his finger on the pulse of what's going on out there. And I'm thrilled to have him here on The Real Wealth Show to share what he knows from years of experience. So Rob, welcome to The Real Wealth Show. Hi, Kathy. How are you? I'm great. I was so impressed with you when you were on a panel at the multifamily conference in Chicago for IMN. And I think you were just on another one in, was it Orlando or? Miami. Miami. Yeah. So you were just an encyclopedia of data and facts, (laughs) which I love. So I wanted to just ask you a few questions about where you see the market today, and specifically multifamily. Are you seeing more people wanting to buy or sell? I guess it depends on who they are, but in the crowds that you hang around in, are people buying or selling? Sure. You know, we own about 14,000 units, and we've been a net seller this year. The equity we're seeing chase deals right now is so aggressive that surely the increase in interest rates hasn't affected any valuations. It's purely just a capital decision. And the funds are getting bigger. So, you know, they have a larger allocation of real estate and they're putting it into some deals that we're selling where, you know, we're scratching our head trying to figure out where the math even makes sense. But we've decided to sell pretty much everything we can. It's been very hard to buy. We have been buying selectively, but overall we will sell about 10 to 12 deals this year. Well, I think that's one of the reasons I wanted you on the show is I'm seeing some of this bullishness with brand new investors who don't necessarily know how to read a pro forma. But what I'm hearing from you is these are some big funds. I mean, big, big funds. Very large. Yeah. So what are they doing? I mean, like when you say you're scratching your head, what specifically are you kind of questioning in their calculations? Well, I'm sure every group does it differently, but how we decide to sell is we take what they're going to pay us and on a go forward IRR, if it's a 10 or less, 10 IRR or less, we decide to sell. And lately, I mean, we are coming to, you know, break even analysis. And I'll give you an example. We are selling a deal in Phoenix, which is a sub four and a half cap rate. Interest rates are going up. So it's going to be above, you know, close to 5% interest rate. And it's a central chiller deal, late 1970s product. So in our head, it just, it doesn't make any sense to buy that. I think what everyone's forgetting is when you get into this older product, there's this big thing called capital and um, pipes are old, everything's old. So That'll wear through cash flow. So your margin for error is very minimal. And so what we've decided to do is sell our older product at sub four and a half cap rates and then buy newer product at five plus cap. Because anything with this word value add 
is just the sexiest thing out there right now. And, <laughs> you know, funds are now two, $4 billion and they need to go what they've created it just for value add. And, you know, I guess the pitch would be, I'm taking a four and a half cap up to a six and a half cap, but that's a tough pitch to my investors to go, geez, you know, if things go bad, it's going to get really bad. So, um, we've decided to kind of be on the sidelines and selectively buy 2000 or newer vintage. You know, we're still doing some older assets, but there's got to be a story there, but that's what we've done this year. Oh boy. You know, I, I get a stomach ache just hearing you talk because I was stuck in an older building with exactly what you said, old pipes and fixing those. The inspectors found other things and mold and this and that, and it just ended up being a nightmare, much, much more expensive than we expected. So value add is not sexy to me, but you're right. I'm seeing <laughs> that everywhere and how fantastic that you can sell an old property at peak pricing and then get into a newer a newer building for a better deal. I mean, that's incredible. Yeah. On a per square foot basis, it's almost identical. So, But I don't have a good story there for investors. I can't take rents up 150 bucks, which is fine with me. But we've seen underwriting, you know, we we get shown deals that we're selling to potentially go into equity and people are just saying, hey, I'm going to increase rents $150. Vacancy will stay at 5%. And the numbers seem to work. I can tell you that if you increase rents with all certainty, increase rents $150 to $200, people are not going to be thrilled with you. So they're going to leave and you're going to have to retenant that property. And, you know, you're not going to keep occupancy at 95 and it'll dip to 85 and yeah, I just have done it so long that I've seen this nightmare before, but we're just nervous. So we've kind of been selling and stockpiling some cash. I mean, you were at that conference. It seemed like I was the <laughs> was the only one somewhat negative on buying right now versus other people that have eight, $900 million funds where they're incentivized only to do deals. They get paid up front. Are think the market's you know, doing great. And it's different when for us, we get, we do one-offs. We have a lot of our own money in deals and I do one-off syndications that I'm only incentivized on the back end. So, you know, we're actually thinking through, can I really make a profit here? Yeah. Um, but I'm only incentivized if investors do well versus, you know, funds, they make a point or two acquisition fee, point and a half asset management fee, and then, you know, a little bit on the promote. So yeah, you really care if a deal goes bad this is where alignment of interest is very, very big. So let's talk about that because it does feel a lot like um, Wall Street where, you know, certain brokers make money or asset managers make money regardless of whether the investor is making money. So how do you as an investor find a deal that aligns with management? So what, what would you look for in this structure if you were investing in someone's deal? Sure. And me and my partner, we do some investing, but you know, usually we like to keep it all under our umbrella just because we feel like we know the assets the best. Um, you know, quick summary on us, and I won't diverge from your question, is we have 14 offices, so we're very local. So when it comes to deals, I just think we know those markets the best. But really what I look for is once you give investors some type of return, you have to incentivize that operator because you know you want them to do better. Is surely if they don't hit their numbers, you want to keep that operator incentivized. Well, and I'll put it back to you a little bit. If you did a deal and you took a 2% acquisition fee, so right off the front, you're, every dollar an investor gives you, you're, you're working with 98 cents. And now you also take 
one and a half percent on that dollar every year for an asset management fee. So, you know, when you're talking a $800 million fund, you're talking millions of dollars. And then you get typically a 15 to 20% promote once you've hit a 10 IRR. Well, the downside is if you hit a six, seven, eight IRR, do you really care about that deal? I can tell you during 08, 09, everyone was walking away from those deals where, because they already took all their fees and they had no promote. We do it a complete other way, but we also invest a lot of our own money because we've been through that. We say, I need a very little acquisition fee to pay my local guy. So it's typically 50 basis points. Asset management fee is very, very minimal. Just pay some back office. And then we do take a little bit larger promote saying, if we do well, well, we should get a little bit more. So we don't front end things. We actually say, listen, we're all incentivized. All of our team makes money once we're in the promote. So we've completely switched the model. And then everyone on my team has to invest equity in the deal. So that makes Mm. you think twice and it keeps you up at night. If things go bad, I can tell you most groups don't invest much money. And then their acquisition guy who does the deals has no money in the deal. So he's very incentivized to just keep doing deals, which I think we're at right now. So on the cash flow, how do you slice that up between the operator and the investor? Just parry pursue. So if I'm giving a 10% dividend, all the money gets a 10% dividend. I only get paid on the back end. You're right. Most groups do take 20% of the cash flow also, but but most of the time it's, you know, we're trying to create some alignment. Um, So if never know if the deal goes bad or if you're funding, you know, you're seeing a lot of people right now miss on cash flow, but they've taken a big, you know, call it $2 million of CapEx and they're actually funding cash flow through that CapEx budget. So for your investors, they just have to be very careful that these groups have good track records because, you know, if you're new out there and you don't have a platform and you don't have an opportunity to cut costs, I'd be very nervous. I mean, you know, you for the larger group right now, because even in the downturn, I have the ability to leverage our 14,000 units to cut costs across, you know, our entire portfolio. Well, and that's the thing that makes me so nervous is I'm seeing busloads of people, many of our listeners who are just obsessed with the dream of making millions from multifamily and all the things that people say, you only have to get one loan and you just increase rents and decrease expenses and bam, you know, you've made money. And it just all sounds so easy. And yet they're coming in at the late stage of it. Like you said, it makes me, it makes me nervous when experienced operators are saying, you know, we're going to sell and who is going to buy what you're done with. That's always very interesting, right? Sure. So obviously every market is different. There's no such thing as one real estate market or one multifamily housing market. So which ones would you say are more disturbing than others? Like which ones are you more eager to get out of and maybe which are better to get into at this time? You know, it, it's tough. I mean, everyone reads the CBRE or Newmark reports and think that they blanket a market and think like Dallas. Everyone loves Dallas. I mean, Dallas has a lot of supply coming. So that gets us nervous. We sold out of that market about a year ago. You know, firsthand, we didn't see the amount of rent growth the reports were telling us. So we said, well, listen, if these guys are going to pay us for future rent increase, we're probably out market we've been very positive on is Sacramento. You know, they've taken a huge, aggressive, I would say, attempt at being the greenest city in the U.S. 
the Bay Area is just not affordable. We were very, very large operators in the Bay, East Bay, and we sold out of that completely. You know, as you saw on that panel, people just keep pushing rents. And I think there's going to be an affordability problem. So you have to look at what markets are still at that 30% threshold of people's incomes um, and still make good incomes. You know, you can say, hey, this has good population growth, but really look at the demographics. Can they afford it? Like Sacramento has phenomenal demographics. It's the capital. It's the number one city for millennials right now. Um, It has a lot going for it. So we really like that. Obviously, Denver and Nashville and Florida really like the Carolina. So anywhere in the Sunbelt states, but probably if we could, we're a little hesitant on Phoenix right now just because it has such a huge run up. But, But moving into Vegas, they're a little about about 12 to 24 months behind Phoenix and then selling out of Dallas. We just bought a deal on Monday in, in Houston and we bought that strictly on discount to replacement costs. So uh, we feel comfortable with the price and we like Houston, but just not sure it's there yet. So we're probably a little early, but I like to buy. But you know, stuff we're seeing that are 20% above replacement costs in Chicago is a perfect example. That gets me very nervous. Tell me more about that, because I see a lot of uh, investors going into Chicago and specifically multifamily. Yeah, it's hard for me to say that we don't do any business in Chicago. I have the entire back office, accounting team, and asset management guys, and our whole accounting team and analysts are all in Chicago, and we don't do much in Chicago. We can't figure out taxes. It's surely not a 3% increase. I mean, whoever's underwriting that, and I don't know if they've been reading the paper, but that's not going to happen. But when it comes to workforce, Chicago's phenomenal. And there's, I don't know, 10,000 units coming online. So, you know, when you look at that and you start going, boy, this property is actually trading above, it's going to sell for above replacement cost. You know, you start going, my downside is pretty terrible. And what is my upside? So it's above what a developer can build it for. It has all-time high rent. So to me, the only way to go is down. But if you have a 20-year hold, do you really care? You know, you should care, but I'm just not sure a lot of these pension funds buying these deals do care. So we're really looking at, you know, replacement costs, the demographics. But I mean, we do a lot of homework when it comes to there. And we think being local is key there. But if I'm like you looking at where to buy right now, I would say some high population growth areas in that workforce housing. I mean, they're not building any more of it. And let's face it, the middle class is evaporating very quickly. So more people going down than up. So if you could do some value add in workforce housing, I think that's a great play. And workforce, are you saying, I know it's the new terminology, but are we talking C-class properties or lower income? I'm I would say C plus to B minus, you know, that forty to $65,000 income range that is trying to get their kids into great schools, like larger units, so they can put their, you know, quote unquote stuff. Retention is much higher. It's hard to get out of the school system and your unit's bigger. But I like that play. I think, you know, if you could offer some form of community to that, some of these rundown assets, I, I, I think you'll do well. Okay, wonderful. So the cities that are overbuilt at this point, or that have a lot of units coming online, we know Dallas, Seattle, did you say Chicago as well? Chicago, yeah. And we're even taking a step back from Orlando. But overall, I mean, if you look at Orlando's job growth, the numbers are just staggering. So we still like, probably not Orlando, but looking at Tampa, you know, I would probably get out of Dallas and anywhere where, I mean, this whole HQ2 
gets us a little nervous. So Portland, Seattle is Amazon really runs those cities. So you maybe not Portland as much, but for sure Seattle. So I'd be a little nervous there and cap rates there are hitting the 3%. So I'm just not sure you're getting paid to take that risk, but maybe go after cities where you're a little more affordable, like a Houston. Houston's been hit hard, obviously your oil crisis and Harvey, and but its population has not stopped growing and job growth is strong. We love Houston. We have our Houston team coming up for our December event. And yeah, we agree. Love Houston. Now, how does an oversupplied multifamily market affect single family homes? Is there an impact? I mean, in other words, an investor who owns a bunch of single family home rentals in Dallas, should they be nervous? Um, That's a tougher one. You know, at one time we owned 2,000 single family homes. We eventually sold that company, but a little different. I'm not sure you can do a blanket answer for that one. I, I would say it depends on where you're buying those single family homes. If you are in a great school district, you know, a, a large home that's three bedrooms, I think you'll do very, very well because you'll always will have that school district. If you've stretched in a bad school district and you have a good rent right now, I think you'll get very hurt. Mm-hmm. You know, your capital's more in single family. I think when the market does turn, I mean, you're seeing single families just slow down. I mean, I've seen it firsthand, but these interest rates affect single family just a lot more. Mm-hmm. So your exit strategy on single family homes is, you know, how do you get out of this thing? Um, yeah, you may make a little bit money, but when you go to sell it and fix it to sell, have you really made a lot of cash? I'm not sure that answer. I mean, five years ago, I would say absolutely. I mean, because you were buying it at such a discount on the purchase price. I don't think you are anymore. Right. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think deals are out there, but I don't think they're anywhere near what they were years ago. No, 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 of course not. Yeah. You've got to be very wise, very wise with any investment. Oh, wonderful. Okay. To sum it up then, the most important thing an investor should look at when looking at a multifamily property on the market for sale, the things that other groups and funds are overlooking would be, it sounds like one thing you said was taxes. Whatever taxes they put in the pro forma is probably not what you will be paying. Would that be accurate? I would agree with that. Okay. For sure. Insurance as well. Would that change from seller to buyer? Of course. Yep. Yeah. Taxes and insurance will adjust. You know, if you are a single buyer, your insurance is going to go up a lot more. You know, groups like us, we do have umbrella insurance policies. So typically our insurance drops. Now there's always a one-off that it does increase just because the timing of a, you know, a Florida flood or whatever. But groups like us, typically we actually, our insurance drops just because we can use our platform to drop insurance. But you're right. And tax insurance always go up. I would say pretty much everything goes up. I see a lot of these older families that have owned an asset for 20 plus years where, you know, they haven't pushed rents, occupancies at 97%. So that makes a whole lot of sense. You have lower rents than the market. So you're better occupied than the market. And then their payroll is a little high and people get comfortable. So can you get rid of half a person or a full person on the staff? Probably. Okay, good stuff. And then then the third thing to look for in the pro forma is the CapEx and what the actual expenditures will be for improving that property versus just some some nice rehab. <laughs> of course. I mean, listen, these people are, are living there for one year. Are they going to take great care of it? You'd love to say yes, but I don't think that's realistic. So 
pipes are getting older. So as these properties age, you're just going to have, you're right, capital is key and people aren't putting enough in it right now. So, you know, in reality, everyone's probably a little light just to get a deal done. You know, we went in through due diligence in a deal we bought about a year and a half ago. Our due diligence is pretty extensive, but we went in and decided that the whole property needed to be repiped. The seller obviously didn't want to hear that, but we were right. So we spent a million two on repiping the entire property. But if we didn't do our homework, that would have been, you know, my guess that would be owned by the lender right now. In fact, it's worked out to be a terrific deal for us. Wow. So do your full due diligence and inspections and get that price point down. Very good. Can't pay enough for it. It's it's (laughs) money well spent. Oh, Rob, well, it has been a pleasure to have you here on The Real Wealth Show. I think you've really helped a lot of our listeners to make better decisions. Perfect. Thanks, Kathy. And thank you for joining me here on The Real Wealth Show. I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer, but I do see some people making some, oh, some decisions that don't account for the fact that the next 10 years will not be the same as the last 10 years. So make sure if you're investing in your own or other people's multifamily projects that you really do your due diligence on the pro forma and make sure you run it through a stress test. I'm Kathy Fedke, and thanks for joining me here on The Real Wealth Show. Let's see you next time. Bye-bye.